Presidings Podcast is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. Northrop Grumman applies electromagnetic maneuver warfare to seamlessly target and combat enemy threats across any domain. By leveraging traditional spectrum-based and next-generation innovations, they're giving your forces a decisive advantage. That's why they're a leader in transformative airborne EW. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com slash EW. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host this week, retired Fleet Master Chief Paul Kingsbury, the co-director of Outreach and also involved with a number of professional titles at the Naval Institute Press to include the new Chief's Guide and the Petty Officer's Guide and what am I forgetting? We're drafting the same uh, continuum on the U.S. Coast Guard, too. So uh, currently working the manuscript for the uh, U.S. Coast Guard Chief Petty Officer's Guide as well. Okay, very cool. So So you've been here almost a year. It'll be a year in November, right? That's when you exactly... Yes, November Because you were sort of uh, uh, skating after you got out of active duty until you showed up here. Double dipping for a bit. Double (laughs) dipping. So what are some of your thoughts? I mean, you came in here with a very unique profile by Naval Institute staff standards, Yep. Um, so what, what, what do you, what do you think after a year basically on the team? So definitely, uh, you know, when I came in, I had a vision for, you know, what I thought, uh, you know, what value I could add and what I could do. And, uh, um, once I've had the support to be able to go out and do the outreach, you know, coming out and engaging the enlisted audiences. So I've seen definitely, um, the awareness, uh, definitely within Navy circles, uh, and others and a willingness to write, um, it's definitely up and we're seeing that, uh, across with, you know, just some rough metrics. Like we talked about enlisted essay entries are over double this year versus last the receptivity, you know, the, the thing, the, the trends in publishing and proceedings magazine and what sailors are writing about. And, you know, we've got two or three articles now with enlisted authors that are publishing. So, um, that's very promising. And there's a definitely when I'm out doing my outreach briefs, once they, many are familiar already with the Naval Institute. So I'll go in and, you know, one of the first questions is, how many have heard of the Naval Institute or read any of our products or been engaged? Uh, at least half of the hands are going up in these enlisted audiences I'm engaging with. And I would offer probably 10 years ago. No, no way. Yeah. That would have happened. So, right, right. Um, that's rewarding and very exciting. And uh, the work we're doing with the press to mature um, that line of, you know, what I would call professional development books. I've been doing a lot of work with uh, Navy Leadership uh, and Ethics Center, Senior Enlist Academy, others to make sure that the content we write about. They don't necessarily approve it, but I, you know, pass it by them to make sure we're aligned and, and that our guides serve as a, as a sound professional guide that complements their leadership development training that they're getting there. So, um, it's great to, uh, you know, when I was getting ready to retire, you know, one of the things I found appealing about coming to the Naval Institute was the fact that I would still be able to shape, you know, the, the health, hopefully, of, of our naval forces across three sea services. So, um, you know, I, I'm, Starting to get in with the Coast Guard, obviously, you know, my relationships within the Navy, CPO mess are the strongest, but I've been slowly starting to get in with the Coast Guard. Uh, I have a co-author that's working with me with the uh, Coast Guard Chief Petty Officer's Manual and Petty Officer's Guide. Um, we've had some publishing going on there. So they, you know, I sense that uh, definitely they're excited. They're intrigued about what the Naval Institute does and looking for opportunities uh, to mature that relationship. And then also I've recently started to 
get in with the Senior Enlisted Academy for the U.S. Marine Corps side as well. So uh, I think I'm going to attend their graduation on the 20th. Um, and that's at Quantico? Where, where are they is, located? Okay. Yep, on Quantico. Right. So, so similar to what we do at the Navy Senior Enlisted Academy, introducing the sponsored student program there and then going up. And uh, my briefs are really focused on not necessarily a hook on, hey, come join the Nettle Institute. I do talk on that. But it's more talking about influence and power and using the form of the Naval Institute as a way that they can influence policy and process and culture that's usually day-to-day beyond what they're normally able to influence. So I think it's a great, uh, great tool for them. Um, you know, it complements many opportunities they have to raise awareness of, of deck plate impacts uh, that are a result of higher decision-making. So as I talk to them and brief uh, and provide insight of what we offer, definitely they're excited about it and they're writing. Well, it's been a pleasure to watch you work, Doctor. I've seen you in action at the Senior Enlisted Academy up in Newport, um, and it really has been a game changer for us. Because as we've said on the show before, this enlisted force currently serving is not the one that I served with and that even you served with when you were a petty officer, right? It's more better educated, more diverse, more worldly in terms of what they are exposed to. Absolutely. So to treat them as a 80s-era makeup would be would be ridiculous yep. and and so the naval institute warden's intent was never to be an officer forum it was yep. never that it's thought leadership and it's about making the finest navy marine corps and coast guard possible at every level which is a great segue to our current guest because yes. what he wrote about is exactly that sort of thing so yep. why don't we introduce him uh so with us this morning is uh Petty Officer Nathan Martin, he's stationed out in Yokosuka, Japan at the Regional Legal Service Office, Western Pacific, for what I've learned today. Uh, Nathan, good morning. How are you doing? Good morning. I'm doing well. How are you? Well, it's actually good night there, right? Oh, yeah, it's, it is. Uh, he's, it's, yes, sir. It's uh, about 8, almost 9 o'clock at night over there uh, in Japan. So thanks for calling in at this late hour. Um, it's, it's always uh, nice to talk across the world and, and uh, you know, reach the, reach the fleet all over the place. So thanks for calling in. So let's talk a little bit about your, uh, you, the, the piece you wrote in uh, the, um, the July issue. What was your motivation and exactly uh, what, what were you talking about in that article? So my motivation with that article was to kind of bring attention to the fact that uh, there's an issue with the maintenance culture currently in in the area that I've served in, which is the surface area. Uh, a lot of times, the principles that are being instructed, which uh, focus on maintaining your integrity first, ensuring that you do maintenance properly, you do it in accordance with procedure, that you don't cut any quarters, uh, these same principles are being undercut by the very individuals giving the instruction based on deadlines based on pressures that they're receiving and that gets filtered down into the junior enlisted better than performing that maintenance and they're being told you know for instance x maintenance item needs to be done by y time and the individual giving the order knows that that's an unreasonable time frame to get it accomplished and they know that the enlisted member receiving that order is also aware that it's an unreasonable time there's an implicit expectation that will get done, which even becomes an explicit expectation once, uh, if it's questioned, though the individual might even say out loud, you know, I understand this isn't reasonable. I just need to see the result. Uh, and this undercuts as far as, uh, 
my paper was specifically regarding uh, retention. So this undercuts morale, and it actually harms retention. A number of, uh, at the time I was in engineering, a number of my coworkers would say, you know, uh, working in engineering is kind of like being in a rate that's a ticking time bomb. It's only a matter of time before something messes up as a result of your maintenance and you're going to mask for it. You're going to mask for this tagout violation. You're going to mask for this uh, error that was caused directly as a result of your maintenance. And, uh, yeah, it hurts. Uh, it hurts retention as a result because sailors don't want to stay in knowing that what they're doing, number one, contradicts the core values that they were taught to uh, to follow. And then number two, knowing that it's it's almost like a trap being told to do something that you know isn't right, but at the same time not receiving, you understand that you won't receive any report, any support uh, if things do go wrong. And so you kind of, you understand that you're going to take on the responsibility for that action. You're going to take on the punishment for that action, but you have to get it done because the maintenance has to be done by whatever time. And so as a result, you have kind of filtering down from the top from those pressures, an expectation to deviate from the maintenance as it's written, as it's stated. And that uh, my paper kind of was drawing attention to the fact that that comes from a very high place. Uh, you know, it goes from not just the maintenance being accomplished, but certain phases being completed on time. It comes from schedules having to be, having to be met and having uh, ships go out and deploy on time. And while that's all well and good, if you can't account for uh, ensuring that the maintenance gets done properly, that it gets done safely, it doesn't matter if your ship deploys on time. If you're deploying unsafely, if you're deploying in a status where you're setting your sailors at risk, you're setting the mission at risk, uh, you haven't really accomplished the mission. So let, let's give a little bit of your bio. Um, at the time you were having these experiences, you were a, a non-rate, is that true, working in an engineering capacity? Uh, I was a gas turbine uh, gas turbine electrician. Okay. A GSE. And now now you've struck for uh, legalman, correct? That's correct. Okay. Yes. Just to establish um, what, what your your profile is and, and, and your bona fides, as it were. Um, so the thing that comes up when you talk about implicit gun decking um, is it just harkens back to the tragic summer of 2017, which is exactly what we've heard since then from the deck plates. Who was it we had on? Um, E.T. 2 Fisher. Yeah, E.T. 2 Fisher was also mentioning this culture of, you know, pressure at the deck plates level. So you, it sort of tacitly gives you responsibility without any of the authority, right? So when it comes to gun decking, what you're saying, Nathan, is the steps that are skipped are up to you, right? You're not directed by the chain of command to skip step number three or whatever. They're just told, here's the time, here's what I need you to do, here's the outcome, now go. Is that correct? Um, to a degree, yes, that's correct. A lot of times that is the case. Uh, a lot of the time I was also simply told, for instance, uh, or I say I, uh, individuals would be uh, told, you know, this has to be done by X time. For instance, I worked in uh, the gauge calibration uh, work center, and so they would tell me, you know, I need you to make sure that your sailors get all of these done within, say, 36 hours. And there's a 
there's a given amount of time that has to be allotted to each maintenance action uh, based on our current PMS system. And if you tell if you tell someone you need to have a hundred maintenance items completed within 36 hours, it's physically literally impossible. And they understand that what you have to do in order to uh, have that final result is basically to slap a sticker on there and not actually perform the maintenance. And it's extremely difficult being in that position to turn around to that individual, whether they're uh, senior enlisted or an officer, and say, I can't, I can't do that. And then once they say you have to, again, you know, repeatedly tell them, I can't accomplish that maintenance. I can't do this. I understand this is what you require from me. I understand this is my job. I, I can't do it. I want to get to that piece. So, you know, I was a former nuke electrician. So um, when you get in this risk management uh, topic, that's what this is really about, right? So this is called perceived <laughs> pressure, right? So pressure on force for a variety of reasons. So a couple of things you're talking here are, um, you know, this pressure from maintenance to or from supervisors. So where are those, where's that pressure specifically coming from? And then why can't, what, what is the sense of why uh, the your average maintenance tech can't turn around and represent that truth to the leadership? What's, what's the fear that they have if they say, no, that's unrealistic, we need more time? Um, a lot of times the reason is because it's not, it's not even coming directly from the leadership you're hearing the order from. So if your chief is being told this has to come down from their divo, from their chief engineer, uh, this has to be accomplished. The pressure isn't just on you from that chief. It's also on them from the individual above them. Uh, and I have, I have seen the situation where the chief informs the sailor, I need you to get this maintenance item accomplished. And they say, I can't get that done. And then it comes to the next person. Another division officer is telling them, you have to get this maintenance done. This is your liberty. You have to get this done. And they're saying, no, I can't. And then it's just going up to the next person. And this is a very real fear, especially if you've seen that happen before. Okay. And to clarify, is this corrective maintenance stuff? Is this preventative maintenance that's per schedule? What are you seeing this in? I've seen this in both corrective and preventative maintenance, both in the event of, uh, you know, PMS that has to be accomplished so that you don't go into the red for the purposes of ensuring that the 3M program passes properly. And also for the purposes of corrective maintenance, where an issue is discovered, again, the first thing that comes to mind for me personally is the gauge calibration program, but I also worked with the uh, the EMO4 work center, and I've seen the same thing there. The corrective issue shows up, and they're looking more for a patch fix than an actual uh, properly completed maintenance item. So Ward, uh, this doesn't get you to appreciate this as a former naval aviator. So this just does, isn't represented in the surface community either. So, you know, in the Chinfo clips, there was a report in the San Diego Union came out, uh, in August. It talked about the HSC 85 incident, um, where, um, sailors were fatally injured due to turnaround maintenance. And it talks right here. Navy interviews with squadron personnel painted a picture of command plagued by tension between maintenance and flight operations. With maintenance personnel feeling pressured into taking shortcuts to keep up with the demands of flight operations, the investigation found. So it's again, it's this ongoing narrative. It's it's you know it's Fitzgerald McCain you know pressures brought forward, um, and I think the root cause is 
Nathan, you know, you talk about perceived pressure, but let's get into some of the the other things. So, where what does Manning? What what role does that play? Right. So, is it? I don't have enough people. Is it? So, I've got a constant demand signal or an increasing demand signal of op tempo or pressure to get things done to meet mission requirements. You've talked about that. At the same time, the fleet is struggling with manning in many cases. Can you speak to uh, what you saw with that? Um, absolutely, I can speak to that. Uh, I know that we're currently, it's its even more pertinent that we're currently in an expansion phase with the Navy. And I've seen divisions that uh, they were down several sailors from where they should have been in order to be at optimal manning. And at optimal manning, accomplishing their PMS, getting their, getting everything done completely, would still have been a fairly demanding task, but with so few sailors assigned to the division, it becomes not impossible without, effectively without gun decking. I've seen divisions that were down to literally three people, where one of them is taking on the role of both work center supervisor as well as maintenance person. They're trying to both instruct another maintenance person to perform the maintenance, teach them how to do it in the first place, And then you have another individual who's trying to be the LPO. They're trying to oversee that work center supervisor. They're trying to do maintenance on their own part as well. And then there are, you know, a variety of other collaterals that are required to be done. And they are, they're stretched incredibly thin. It makes it, again, near impossible for them to do their job. And, uh, it's, it's a stretch on, on the manning of the ship. Uh, particularly if, for instance, a sailor goes to NJP, or uh, has to be removed from the ship, and their billet ends up gapped. Then that shop understands that they have to deal with that loss of a manning, that uh, that missing manning for an extended period of time. It's not going to be resolved anytime soon. Yeah, this is reminiscent of uh, some of my squadron tours, where a work center was so undermanned that you didn't have anybody to do the QA of a maintenance action. So the same guy would wind up queuing a maintenance, a maintenance action that he did, which is verboten, right? But if you don't have the numbers, it's like, do the math, Skipper. You know, who's supposed to do this then, right? Because you have a 23, you know, sortie day, you know, and you're, you got four jets on the flight deck and they've got to go and missing a sortie is like the worst thing that could ever happen. And so you do start to uh, cut corners to gun deck to get the airplane off the front end. And, uh, you know, I'm reminded when you were talking about the situation, um, you know, before on uh, what ship were you just talking about in the Chinfo clips? Where was oh, it? Oh, that was a, 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 a Hilo squadron, right? Yep. So um, I'm I, I just in my mind's eye remembered we had our Ortiz cut corners and wound up jettisoning a drop tank on the flight deck that hit a guy's leg and broke it, a, a compound fracture, um, and so the. When we were did the uh, investigation, it just turns out that they'd skipped steps in the maintenance action um, that resulted in this this drop tank. And you remember, Tomcat drop tank is yes. pretty big. Uh, and uh, luckily, it wasn't a bomb or something, right? I mean, you know, this this is what happens. As we say in the fleet, there are no new mishaps, just new people doing the same old mishaps. Yep. So I think. In Nathan's situation and what we've seen in recent years is this increased op tempo that's running headlong into reduced manning. And this is where you get this culture. And suddenly it's systemic. Yes. Right? And so that's what we're speaking about. So, Nathan, towards the end, you you know, at proceedings, we don't just complain. We also provide solutions. So 
you framed the problem very well. What would you recommend at your level could be some of the solutions to alleviate these kinds of pressures and this kinds of gun decking and then the resultant uh, re- retention issues that arise? Well, a good part of this, uh, if you ask me, is that the sailors are being taught the right thing. Uh, at boot camp, at their A schools, when they get to the ship, they're getting told, you know, that the maintenance has to be accomplished properly, that it has to be done correctly in order to in order to get the desired result, in order to ensure that you have safety. Um, what they need is reinforcement of that, not erosion by being told afterwards, you know, this has to be accomplished regardless of whether or not it's feasible. Uh, so to answer your question as far as what can be done at our level, at the deck plate level, it's going to be the LPOs, the work centers, supervisors, and the chiefs, they have to take a hard line and say, you know, sir, I understand that this is what we have to have done within this amount of time, but it's not feasible. It's not possible. And the only way, I guess, to uh, accomplish that is the umbrella effect, to kind of take that heat for the uh, for the maintenance person that's going to get it instead. And, I mean, the same thing goes for the division officer, the individual above them, the department head, who's going to take that heat whenever they say, you know, I was told by my personnel they can't get this done within the amount of time that has been requested. We have to delay. So taking that it's, heat, what you, you describe as taking that heat, what do we think the consequences of that? I, I know they should. there should be none, but what, what are the consequences? And, Paul, I'll ask you this as well. Is this, does this result in a bad eval? Does it, you know, do you get NJP? What, what happens in, you know, in real life? Right. Uh, so I would say... So obviously the NJP ends up being at the end user level, right? So that's, you know, I think uh, Nathan Martin writes about that. You know, the sailor is the one who cuts the corner ultimately because they've been told, you know, operate in, in accordance with procedures. When they take that risk on at the wrong level, they feel the NJP. Very rarely do you see... Um, well, this is the trap, right? Yes, this is what Nathan's absolutely. talking about. That's a trap. Yep. Because right? um, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah. You're there to take the hit. Absolutely. And that's the morale issue. Yeah, that's and the that's, retention yeah. issue. And uh, so the point here is, you know, there there has to be a recognition. And, you know, to me, I see it as Chiefs Mess 101, right? It's like, that's always been the expectation is like, hey, yeah, I'm the chief. I got it, but I have to give this top cover and I have to be able to represent these things up and say no, right? So if they're, if that's not happening, that's a problem. Uh, for the cheese mess to start uh, exploring and and kind of getting at. Okay, I hope that's not the culture across the cheese mess. But at the same time, when I go into the wardroom, yes, the cheese mess. You know, they have a lot of uh, you know authority, but they ultimately work for the wardroom, right, to execute. So all this is pressure that you know I start with a commanding officer that won't say no. So if a commanding officer won't go to you know if they have a mission requirement that's driving you know uh, an operational commitment. And say you've got a pump down, you need to do repairs on it, obviously, and you can't start at the propulsion plant, whatever it is. Um, that CEO's got to be able to translate up to the ISIC, right, and translate that risk and say, no, I can't do it, right? And if that commander above decides to accept that risk and give that signal, now you take that that responsibility off the sailor. So now the CEO acknowledges and says, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to, you know, deviate from this procedure. That's how it has to work, and it doesn't, though. So that pressure translates down. And sailors are are ultimately doing this. So, but let's. There's a few steps between 
the tasking and the skipper saying, yep. I can't do it, very respectfully, Admiral. Yes. Right? And this is the morale issue. Yep. Right? So liberty is optional, right? Yep. And as you get in an interdeployment training cycle, as you get closer to deployment, weekends go away, yep. right? And so really, you're not on cruise when you actually leave the pier. You're on cruise for three months before that. Yep. Right, so we got people who are little league coaches and Boy Scout masters, and they have want to go home and be with the family and so forth. And you're just told, "Hey, we're working this weekend." Yep. Right, that's a huge morale blow. Um, but professional sailors know this is probably going to be the case. Yes. Right, so you go through that part of the matrix. So if if the reality of losing liberty up to cruise um, is the thing that causes you to get out of the navy, that may be a Maybe the Navy's not meant for you. So let's be honest about the way this goes. So if that threshold has already got your morale down, then you're probably going to get out. Now, if you weather that and you're like, sir, I'm ready to do the hard jobs and make sure we go on cruise safely, and now we still can't get it done, even working 24-7, you know, two shift and blah, blah, blah. Um, Now I think it's time for the the CEO to have moral courage and, you know, send yes. a red star cluster up yep. and say, I can't put to sea. This is what we've seen in the comprehensive review. And that was what was systemic in seventh fleet in terms of sailing with one screw and, you know, not being honest about this, your, your FMC rates and all that yep. sort of thing. So I just want to throw that little tidbit in there yep. about how this matrix should go. Yep. And there's a, I mean, there's a, frankly, a conversation that you should be able to translate, right? So if I'm a, you know, if I'm that chief or that LPO works on our supervisor and I should be able to to deliver the why on why we have to do this maintenance, right? Um, That, you know, most sailors will work hard and they'll work late and they'll get things done. You're talking, you know, young men and women that, you know, they're in technical ratings. They love what they're doing. They like to fix and and make things happen. So it's not that they don't want to do the work that's required to get things done. In many cases, though, um, the why it's being done is just a simple, you know, in the case of this, you know, it's a simple perception of, hey, it's just a demand signal to get things done. Um, I think it's important to connect it to, hey, here's why we have to do this. Uh, and then the other issue is it, if this becomes the norm and not the exception, right? So um, that's another thing you got to account for. So, Nathan, what, what do you think at your level? Is, is what we're saying right or are we missing something here? Um, what are the things that erode morale as you speak about in the article here? I think, uh, I think you're really hitting it on the head. Um, one of the things that you mentioned earlier, uh, was dead on that you're effectively, whenever you have the sailor making that decision and taking on the responsibility for the maintenance item, they are effectively taking on responsibility beyond where they're at. If they're being influenced to gun deck like that, influenced to take on the potential roles role of an NJP, and because someone was unwilling to have the courage to say this can't be done in time, that sailor is then kind of forced to take on the role of the scapegoat, if that makes sense. It does. Um, Yeah, and I've seen it. Um, What I've seen is the sailor gets punished, so does the LPO, and so does the chief. Right? It's not just the sailor, but you could say that the sailor was set up, you know. Yes. And that's that's what I mean whenever I talk about the morale issue. The sailors who have said uh, that... For them, they said, this job is a time bomb. It's that they recognize that if they continue business as usual, eventually, unless they're lucky, one way or the other, they're going to be caught. And it's just not a way to do business. It's not a way to uh, to try and have a career. And as a result, they don't try to make a career of it. I've met some extremely hardworking, dedicated individuals who really enjoyed their job. 
like they legitimately enjoyed the work that they did. They found it interesting. They uh, dedicated time off work to learning more about what they did and becoming more and more technically proficient. At the end of the day, whenever it came down to their EAOS, they were saying, well, I was lucky to make it this far. Uh, frankly, the demand is just too high for me to do work that I can't accomplish and that I have to cut corners on. And so as a result, they end up they end up getting out and we lose someone who is a real asset to the Navy. I'm reminded of when I was the legal officer in my first squadron, VF-32, and it struck me as we're going through these NJPs, it was really easy as a sailor to get in trouble. You miss shift change, you miss, and as an O, you can roll in if you're not on the flight schedule, kind of whenever you want, you know, and I just remember thinking, wow, you know, there is more accountability at, at the you know, sort of the time-sensitive uh, way uh, for the uh, the troops in the squadron, yep. you know? And uh, yeah, it really is. I think Nathan's really hit a, a good point there. Absolutely. There is a lot of pressure. There is. At the most junior levels. Yep. And it's not just maintenance either, right? I'm telling you, PQS, you know, I just, you know, wrote this with Commander Millbrook is um, she framed this article up and I was like, yes, absolutely. So once again, right, uh, you know, you got to look at key pressures though. It's, you know, force equals pressure over area in physics, right? So pressure is the demand signal. The area is the fact that you don't have enough people to do what you need to do. So pressure keeps going up. And these are good. That's I, some good learning you've just imparted. Yes, to our, that's my new wow. side kicking back in, right? <laughs> Damn. I can translate anything into physics. Um, but you've got to, uh, you know, and I'm not excusing people making bad decisions, but these, I can't help but think these are good people that want to do the best thing they can. And they, they're, you know, they're put into a, ethical dilemma right yeah. and it's almost a survival kind of well um i got pressure coming here i got pressure coming here you know it's it's no different it's a than, matrix where you're more likely to do it wrong yes inherently yeah and then the leadership has the ethical high ground because they can default to well i told you it's wrong yeah but this yeah. honor courage commitment thing applies to leadership too so where's Absolutely. the honor and not covering down where's the commitment to your teams and your people where's the courage to stand up and represent to the chain of command no, here's what's really going on. And I'm telling you, this is this is going across force. It's still there. And I'm glad young sailors like uh, Petty Officer Martin are representing this. And you, you can make it right in time. So let's say, you know, the final weekend before you're going on deployment and all of a sudden a pump breaks or a generator goes down. So that work center has to work. Yes. And then you, the leadership puts a pin in that. And then your first Liberty port they get to skip a, a, a section duty, yes. something like that, right? Yep. And so that's that's where leadership can, over the long haul, you know, impart justice, and that should help morale. Yeah, you know, and, and uh, you know, as a young sir, I was involved in corrective maintenance and things like that. There's a sense of pride and accomplishment when, when things go down, and hey, it's on us. You know, we can turn. And how leadership represents that, um, but leadership has to be mindful too of you know. How much are you pushing and is it realistic or can we just take a day off? I had a CEO on the Juno um, who was very good at this, right? 40-year-old, you know, 40-year-old amphibious ship, um, had a lot of material condition, you know, maintenance problems down engineering. But once he started going to the ISIC and saying, hey, I need a day or two more in port, you gave the sailors the space, the pressure's reduced, and now everyone is aligned to, okay – you know, we're in this together. Let's get this done. What can you do? And even sometimes two days wasn't enough. And the sailors felt comfortable and the chain of command felt comfortable coming back to the CO because the CO had created the conditions and relieved that pressure by getting the top cover of the ISIC. Obviously, it's all conditioned. This is context. So 
yeah, if you're in a war fighting scenario, the risk matrix changes, right? So, but I, my biggest thing out of this is for not just for the CPO mess, but for the wardroom and above to recognize when you make high level decisions and resources are being cut, the stuff is translating to these behavioral things on the deck plate and you're putting good people in a bad position to make bad ethical choices. And a reminder that McCain and Fitzgerald were not wartime scenarios, no. right? Our yep. biggest tragedy in the last decade um, were not wartime scenarios. So Nathan, tell us a little bit about what you're doing now as a legal man. What, what's a day in your life like? Uh, as a legal man now, uh, my job has kind of shifted around to being uh, command services. So I now instead of being part of one of those commands that's struggling with these issues, I'm part of a command that assists them, uh, provides you know, the kind of legal assistance that they need and uh, assists in helping our attorneys in uh, being able to provide the legal advice that's ne- that is needed. So what's your sense? So you're at Yokosuka? Yes. So so uh, I guess you guys call it Yokosuka? You're a West Coast dude. I mean, East yeah. Coast. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a variety of... Yeah. Uh, I've never been to Japan. Never. Um, my only West Coast port was Singapore. Yeah, we got to yeah. go do some outreach. There we got it. Let's year. do it. Yeah, but so how's how's morale along the waterfront? Do you think, Nathan? Are we trending upwards, downwards? What what's your sense? Because you see a lot of the problem, children. Obviously, at your level, what are you thinking? I've actually spoken to a number of sailors, and uh, I spoke to them specifically about this issue because, again, as you mentioned, it's not just maintenance; it's PQS. It's a cultural issue, and ask them. You know, I'm in a position where I can talk to them and find out if this is more than just the commands that I've experienced, if this is something that all the other sailors that were in my same position are experiencing too. And, and the answer is yes, they're, they're still experiencing the same issue. It's the same pressure is still coming down and they're still trying to find, they're either trying to find a way to, to escape it or they're trying to find a way to deal with it because they want to, you know, stay in the job. And there's, I mean, there's also the consideration. We're not isolated from the fact that we realize, especially out here in West, in the Western Pacific, that uh, there are rising tensions out there, and that our ships need to be ready and capable of going out to meet mission. And if you send them out with PQS that's been deferred, with maintenance that needs to be accomplished, but it's only been bandaged over, uh, with you know fixes over something that isn't. It's not at ship's force level. It's something that needs to be fixed out in the arts. But sailors have done something to make sure that the ship can still get underway with that issue. Uh, if you send ships out like that, it doesn't matter that you get them on the water. Uh, they need to be mission ready. And it's, it's potentially putting those sailors in danger. And that's, that's kind of something that I've caught from them is they realize it's not so much going out to sea anymore. It's going out to sea and realizing that their ship's not where it should be. And can you really trust the ship the way you need to? Yeah. So this was, again, a lesson of the comprehensive review. Um, And hopefully we're attending to this. And the fact that uh, that's one of Nathan's takeaways is is of concern. Uh, So what's next for you, Nathan? How much longer you got in this tour? And what do you intend to do with, uh, with your career? Well, this is, uh, this is an unaccompanied tour, so it's only two years, uh, after this. Uh, I hopefully plan to reunite with my wife back, uh, in the States and, uh, continue from there. I mean, my goal is to continue in this rating now that I've converted. It's, uh, it's what I've wanted since I joined the Navy. 
Hey, uh, Paris and Martin, uh, let's talk a little bit. So as I go around to outreach, one of the things I talk about is how sailors can influence policy process and culture through writing and specifically the form that the Naval Institute offers. So you've had the courage to dare to offer your insights and dare to make a difference. What's been the feedback so far? What's been your experience with writing and what advice would you give to your peers on on using these venues? Uh, the feedback has been surprisingly good. I was, whenever I initially wrote this, uh, I wrote it, uh, out from a maintenance person perspective, out on the ship, and I fully expected some negative feedback because this was, uh, to a degree, critical of the ship that I was on because these maintenance issues, they existed there as they do on other ships. Uh, and so my fear was that I was going to get some kind of backlash, but if I'm being perfectly honest, I didn't. Uh, my command there was supportive. They appreciated that I brought the issues attention, and since I've arrived at my new command here at Rosa Westpac, they've also been extremely supportive of me trying to put this out there. So if any sailors are concerned about that, I would argue that it's not something that you need to weigh over the importance of getting those issues to light. It's, it's more important to make sure that people are aware because the individuals who might see this, they might not find out any other way. They might be isolated from this kind of feedback and so it's important it's important to hear it otherwise the culture can't be changed fantastic nathan thanks again uh this has been great discussion i think it uh you know to hear that perspective um thank you for having like i said the courage to write please encourage your peers to do the same thing and i look forward to your next piece thanks to pet officer nathan martin calling in from japan and remember victory begins at the naval institute we'll see you next time Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. Northrop Grumman applies electromagnetic maneuver warfare to seamlessly target and combat enemy threats across any domain. By leveraging traditional spectrum-based and next-generation innovations, they're giving your forces a decisive advantage. That's why they're a leader in transformative airborne EW. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com slash EW. <laughs>